You're listening to Constitutionally Sound from the Center on Constitutional Change. We'll be back in your feeds with new episodes in September, but for now, please enjoy this episode from our archive. For more from us throughout the summer, please visit our website, centeronconstitutionalchange.ac.uk, for the latest blogs and analysis. Hello and welcome to this first episode of our new podcast, Constitutionally Sound. My name's Alan Little, I'm a journalist and broadcaster, and I'll be hosting this series of podcasts from the Centre on Constitutional Change at the University of Edinburgh. In the UK, we are living through a period of constitutional upheaval more profound than at any time in living memory. We know what we're in transition from, but what are we in transition to? At the end of this year, what powers are coming back to the UK from Brussels? Whose hands will those powers end up in? What will be the impact of Brexit on relations between the four nations of the UK? In this first episode, we're examining the impact Brexit is having on the devolved dispensation and on the union itself. Few people are better placed to start untangling some of those questions than the two people I have on the line now. Nicola McEwen is Professor of Territorial Politics at the University of Edinburgh and co-director of the Centre on Constitutional Change. Her project, A Family of Nations, Brexit, Devolution and the Union, considers many of these questions. Philip Rycroft has spent much of his working life at the eye of this gathering storm. He was, until 2019, Permanent Secretary at the Department for Exiting the European Union, so he led, until recently, Britain's preparations for Brexit. He's also been head of the UK Governance Group in the Cabinet Office, where he promoted understanding of devolution and other constitutional issues in Whitehall, and oversaw the UK government's relations with the devolved governments. Nick, let's start with you. What are the challenges Brexit poses for the devolved settlement in broad brush terms to begin with? With the introduction of devolution, there was a a sense that there could be a clear idea of what is reserved and what is devolved. And that was never really the case. That was always something of an exaggeration. There were always overlaps. But with Brexit and with the repatriation of powers and competences from the EU to the UK and to all of the institutions within the UK, then it's all much more complicated now. There are potentially more overlaps between the devolved powers and the reserved powers, and there are more opportunities for the the devolved governments and the UK government acting in areas like education or, or environment or agriculture to go in their own ways unless they by agreement or by by regulation, they decide or are forced to go in a way together. So it's just a lot more complicated now. And it does mean that there is a need to find ways and mechanisms for the governments to work together. And that's been one of the biggest weaknesses of the devolution uh, arrangements we've had in the UK so far. Philip Rycroft, uh, you were in, in in the midst, in the thick of all this, Do you think the people who are the political leaders of Project Brexit understand the devolved settlement? So as part of my job in Whitehall for seven years was to promote understanding of devolution uh, with civil servants, obviously, but also with the politicians that I work with. I say the understanding was not where it should have been. And when I joined the Cabinet Office in mid-2012, that was obviously at the beginning of the Uh, of the referendum campaign for Scottish independence. So Whitehall had a real hill to climb to get its head round what devolution meant for the distribution of power 
and political responsibility across the UK. The independence referendum was a big shock uh, to Whitehall and the Westminster polity around all of that. I think it faded away a bit when that referendum was won for the union, uh, but has come back redoubled with Brexit, which really does challenge, as Nicola has described, the basis of relationships um, between the different governments of the UK. Let's not forget those relationships were already getting more complicated by the extension of devolution uh, through the Scotland Act 16 and the Wales Act uh, 17, both of which introduced uh, more uh, areas of of so-called shared power on tax and welfare, uh, which required the governments to work together. It's just not been in the practice of Whitehall to work with other governments closely within the UK context. So the cultural shock has been quite profound and is much exacerbated by Brexit. Well, let's, let me ask you about a specific example then of powers that will be coming back. Agriculture and fisheries have been regulated at a European level for 40 years in the UK. Those powers are coming back. They're not a reserved matter in the, in the uh, Devolution Acts of 1997. Should they, are, they, are those powers going to come back to Edinburgh, Cardiff and Belfast, or are they going to go to Whitehall? Do we even know? The theory, uh, of course, is that the, these are powers that fall within devolved competence, so they should come back uh, to the devolved uh, uh, governments to manage uh, those policy areas. But of course, the reason that a lot of these powers were held at the European level in the first place, particularly agriculture and fisheries, but also environment, lots of other issues, uh, was the exercise of those powers has cross-border implications. And just to to make this very straightforward, you think about agriculture, if you subsidise lambs that are raised on the hills uh, in the borders of Scotland, those lambs have been sold uh, into the same market uh, as the lambs raised on the fells of Cumbria or Northumberland. And if, they, if they, the subsidy regimes are different across that border, that gives a competitive advantage uh, to one set of farmers over the other. And that's why these things have been regulated at EU level um, for the past 40 years or so. So there is a very legitimate question to be asked. As those powers come back, how are they managed in a way that sustains the workings of the of the UK market, uh, where businesses, farmers, fishermen, whoever it is, one side or, or the other of the different borders in the UK, don't get an unfair competitive advantage. And that's what a lot of the debate has been about between the governments over the last four years or so. Nicola, we're only a few weeks away from uh, the end of the transition period. How close are we to resolving any of these questions? Probably still quite far away, um, I think, and the politics surrounding all of these issues is not helping. My own view is that the governments across the UK aren't opposed to having a set of arrangements that avoids things like a competitive disadvantage for producers in one part of the UK compared to another. The key is who gets to decide. And when the powers are devolved and within the responsibility of the devolved institutions, that gives them leverage in the discussions and the negotiations with the UK government that they may and probably would not otherwise have if the issues are purely matters for the UK Parliament. 
But some of this was resolved a couple of years ago when there was an enormous issue, you might remember, um, over the EU Withdrawal Act when the UK government um, introduced legislation that was passed that decided that repatriated the powers, the EU competences, created this area of law called retained EU law. And at that point, there was a, an initial inclination to centralise everything, to say that the, the powers would be held centrally until they decided that there wasn't a need to do things uniformly. But the UK government reneged on that at, at that time. So the powers that are coming back will fall to the devolved institutions. But there's now another discussion and another debate around the EU internal market legislation as to whether or not there will be um, scope for the devolved institutions to, to do things differently, to chart their own course, if you like, in the way that they might otherwise be able to do. So again, we're back to the politics. Again, we're back to the issue of who gets to decide. And that, coupled with a very uh, low level of trust between the governments, is making some progress difficult. I want to come on later on in the podcast uh, to the question of why support for independence in Scotland is rising in the context of both COVID and Brexit. But since Nicola has raised the internal market bill, that's central to this whole question. Philip, what does the market, the internal market bill do? Uh, and how closely were Cardiff, Edinburgh and Belfast consulted and brought into the process in drawing it up? Both good questions. I, the bill, in, in simple terms, uh, creates a framework for a UK internal market, which paradoxically there wasn't on the, the, the statute book in the UK because the, uh, the adherence to single market norms across the UK sat within our responsibilities as an EU member state uh, under the EU single market more generally. And it does so by introducing these principles of, of mutual recognition and non-discrimination, which basically says a good or a service that is supplied legally on one in one part of the UK that cannot be stopped from being provided uh, in other parts of the UK. And there's a lot of detail behind that, and uh, Nicola and, and others have done some very um, elegant work looking at what the implications of, of, that, uh, of that are. But the key point is the one you make about uh, consultation uh, around this bill. This bill has been introduced in the teeth of fierce opposition, not just from the Scottish government, which one might expect as a government which is not interested ultimately um, in the coherence of a UK internal market because it is uh, seeking uh, separation uh, from the UK, but also from the Welsh government. People tend to forget that the Welsh government is resolutely unionist in its approach and, and has always been so. It is uh, supports the continuation of the UK union, but has found the UK internal market bill a very bitter pill to swallow. And so there is a real question there about the underlying approach to this, that it has not been done uh, by seeking the assent of the devolved uh, governments, it's been done in the teeth. It is being done in the teeth of, of their uh, opposition to it, and that says a lot. It seems to me about the uh, the sort of approach that the UK government is taking, and the attitude that reveals towards the devolution settlements. Uh, Nicola, what? Why do the uh, devolved governments oppose the internal market bill? 
because of the uh, lack of consultation, of course, because of the lack of a role for them to co-determine, to co-decide what the rules should be governing an internal market. But it's also, and perhaps primarily because it risks fundamentally altering the way that devolution has worked so far. Up until now, um, the devolved parliaments have been able to make laws um, that apply to all of the activities within their areas of competence within Scotland, Wales or Northern Ireland, so long as they were compatible with EU law. And that would no longer be the case in areas that are affected by what are called the market access principles uh, within the legislation. In other words, if, say, the Scottish Parliament uh, was going to pass a law, as it's consulting on just now, around a more radical set of proposals around single-use plastics, the legislation would not prevent them from passing that, legis- passing that law. But what it would do is prevent um, the Scottish Government from implementing that for all activity within Scotland because it simply wouldn't apply to trade uh, that was coming from another part of the UK that had already satisfied regulations set in those other parts. So it reduces the ability of the devolved legislatures and the devolved governments from being able to achieve the policy goals that they're setting out, whether it's in the environment or in public health, where these have an effect on on trade and cross-border trade in particular. So it puts free trade, unfettered access for business above all other things, all other policy goals. And that's been seen as a direct challenge to devolution. And there are other aspects of the bill too, powers that it gives to ministers to change key areas uh, of the bill without consulting or without securing the consent of the devolved institutions. And also a spending power, the details of which are very unclear, but a power that the UK government is giving to itself to spend money uh, in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland on areas that would otherwise be devolved. And there's a massive range of areas that are listed in the bill where the UK government uh, is looking to to spend money on. Um, And it's not at all clear whether they will do that in cooperation with the devolved governments or in competition with them as part of the more assertive nationalism, if you like, or assertive unionism that Philip referred to earlier. Let's unpack some of the politics of this, because uh, the polls are now consistently putting in support and independence above 50%. I spent a long time in 2013 and 2014 travelling Scotland uh, and reporting the independence referendum campaign. And I reached the conclusion that there was a tin ear in Whitehall for what was happening in Scotland, not just a tin ear for the understanding what it was that was driving so many people into the independence camp but for the nature of the union as a multinational state in general. I get the impression of the current government at Whitehall that they think all they need to do to combat rising support for independence is mount a more successful PR campaign north of the border. Whereas my own impression is this goes right back to the 1980s, 40 years. The way to save the union, if that's what you want to do, it seems to me, is to govern the country in a way that is consistent with mainstream values in Scottish society. and. 
first of all, Philip, do you agree with that? And do you think that is understood in Whitehall? I think the in order to sustain the union, uh, absolutely key to that is a point you make that uh, the people in Scotland, also Wales and Northern Ireland, uh, need the assurance uh, that their interests are uh, being heard in the highest councils of the land, but also respected, um, and that their their voice uh, is listened to and their interests accordingly taken into account. An approach that uh, seeks to deny that, as you say, just to, that is founded uh, simply on on assertion as sort of PR campaign is not long term going to 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 win back sentiment in in Scotland uh, and risks also the feelings in in Wales and Northern Ireland. So you have on the one hand you have the sort of the the way in which Scotland uh, is seen to be part of the union, the way that the union works for Scotland and for Wales and Northern Ireland. But you've also got the emotional bond. Uh, and in, no doubt when you were doing your tours in, in 2012, 13 and 14, you will have you know, seen the polling and, and, and heard the discourse about the way in which at the heart, if you like, was slipping away from the union, uh, that people uh, feeling in their bones that you didn't quite work for them in the way that it might have worked for their forebears. Uh, but people ultimately persuaded in September 2014 to vote uh, with their heads because they were they were worried about the economic impact of independence. Now, I've always felt that just having, if you like, a negative argument for why you stay in the union, because leaving a union will be bad for you economically, is just not enough. Um, and that the UK government should be aiming at a situation where the polls, far from showing over 50% support for independence, should be regularly showing 60 plus percent support for the union, because people in Scotland are agreed that the union works for them, not just economically, uh, but also, if you like, emotionally, that they, that attachment um, is, is, can be regrown and, and refound. That's a really, really big ask. But it does seem to me that the, the starting point for that is perhaps not uh, a, an approach that, that sees its, its sort of primary objective of biffing uh, the democratically elected government of Scotland, however much you disagree with it but a more collaborative approach might be a better starting point. Do you think that's understood in Whitehall, or is there still a tendency to think in Whitehall that we are the centre of the universe, we know best, matters are best decided here for the whole of the United Kingdom? Whitehall is a, is a big machine, and I was part of it um, uh, for, for close on 10 years, working on this on this stuff and some folk in Whitehall absolutely do get it and understand it and a lot of people spend a lot of time um, very patiently explaining to civil service colleagues uh, why devolution matters and how best to approach it to help them understand the politics of devolution. There has been a wariness in Whitehall I think of, 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 of engaging not politically with a big P but understanding the politics of what makes um, Scotland tick, what makes Northern Ireland tick, what, what makes Wales tick in terms of understanding where people are at and why, uh, uh, why people think as they do about, about the union. But they, there is no doubt at all that the, the centre of gravity um, in, in Whitehall is such as not to accommodate uh, the complexities of devolution within the UK. It's not been in the tradition, obviously, of the UK um, for many, many years, other than uh, in respect of Northern Ireland, which uh, 
has always been uh, to some extent the case apart. Uh, and the, the centre of gravity of the civil service of Whitehall has been more around the UK's uh, uh, place in the wider world, its defence and security responsibilities, uh, and, and that side of government, and far too little attention paid to understanding the dynamic of governance within the United Kingdom. Uh, and I don't think this is just about the devolved uh, parts of the UK, by the way. I think this applies to England as well. Uh, Whitehall, in my experience, um, was very, very slow to spot and understand the UKIP uh, phenomenon, uh, the sort of, uh, of, of, of drives uh, that, that pushed support towards that UKIP was able to, uh, uh, to latch onto to increase its support base. Uh, and therefore, a lot of the a lot of the momentum that lay ultimately behind the Leave vote uh, in, the, in the EU referendum, which caught Whitehall by surprise, as it did many other commentators um, uh, who see, saw, saw the world uh, from that perspective. Nicola, 2020 has been a bit of a perfect storm for the union because it's brought together the coronavirus pandemic and the transition period for leaving the EU. In a sense, what we've seen this year is devolved powers exercise more visibly, more publicly than they have been in the 20 years of the existence of the uh, devolved parliaments. Uh, it seems very likely now that that combination is going to propel Nicola Sturgeon to a strong majority in the Scottish Parliament next year. They're polling over 50% in the constituency section. That would see them take most of the seats, the single-member constituency seats in Scotland. They will, in that event, take that as a mandate for a second referendum. It will almost certainly be rejected by uh, the government at Westminster, who say that the 2014 exercise was a once-in-a-generation opportunity for Scotland. What are the political dangers for the UK government in the years that lie ahead of that? Well, the political dangers for the UK government is that that position and that response is unsustainable. And it would seem unsustainable if, and this is a big if, but if it were met with sustained majorities in support of independence, and particularly if the if that figure rises beyond the sort of low to mid fifties um, to a higher level of support, um, there are of course dangers for the Scottish government there too, and for the SNP in particular there too, because um, legally the power to legislate for an independence referendum or a constitutional referendum of any kind lies uh, with the UK Parliament under the devolved settlement and they don't want to go down a Catalonia route. They don't want to um, have a different kind of referendum, not least because, as we saw from 2016, winning a yes vote, winning a referendum is only the very start of a long process of negotiations uh, that would then lead you to a new kind of relationship. And so you're, you're absolutely right that this year has made visible the, the powers and the authorities of the devolved institutions in public health, particularly in England. I think it's, it's raised awareness within England about the fact of devolution um, and, and what that 
entails. And we started to see more of a discourse, including from the UK government, about the four nations. We didn't really heard that very much before, the four nations, the four nations. But um, I think it does go back to the point that Philip was making about the issue of voice. And unless you follow up that rhetoric uh, with uh, meaningful channels of influence, with bringing the devolved governments and indeed the, the, the mayors in England as well into the discussions where key decisions are made, then there will be political fallout from that. That, that would seem likely to have a counterproductive uh, effect, do you think, Nicola? I, I do think so. I, I mean, it, it's an approach and there are governments around the world take different approaches to the way that they respond to challenges of nationalism from parts within their countries. Um, but it does seem to me that the more combative, the more the UK government is seen to undermine devolution um, rather than to embrace it, uh, then the more that is likely to alienate those who may not be committed pro-independence supporters, but are committed to some form of self-government, that were committed to a Scottish parliament within the union. If they are seen to undermine it, and there's competing narratives around that, but if they are seen to undermine it, then it does risk making this into the binary choice uh, that it has become in debate about independence versus union, whereas in reality, in public opinion, there is a much broader spectrum than that. We're getting towards the end of our podcast now, uh, and I want to end by asking you both the same thing. Philip, I'm glad you mentioned the fault lines that are opening up, not just between the devolved parts of the UK and the, and the UK government, but also within England itself and the, the profile that the, the, the leaders in the north of England have developed over the last few weeks in particular is very illustrative of those fault lines within England. So the question I, I suppose I want to ask you is a very broad one. Do you think that the union, as it's currently constituted, is still the best form of statehood for the peoples of the UK? When, when the values of the two halves of the country, Scotland and Northern Ireland on the one hand voting decisively against Brexit, England and Wales voting for it by narrow margins, are, are so divergent now, or does it need some fundamental reformation in order to save it? Nicola first. I think I would be careful of portraying the divisions on starkly geographical terms like that. I mean, clearly, Brexit has been a very divisive issue not just between the nations and territories, but also within them. But I do think that more could have been done around Brexit on bringing those along who were not in favour of it, bringing the Remain camp along. And that has a territorial implication when it's um, overlaid with all of the dis discussions and disputes. Uh, between the territories that we have been talking about. For me, it was really interesting to hear the, the issues that people like Andy Burnham were raising about a lack of consultation and a lack of communication from the UK government, because it was all so very familiar to those of us who have been observing intergovernmental relations between the UK government and the devolved governments for many years. And it does speak to this bigger issue, a bigger challenge, I think, for the UK government is how to be comfortable with the system of devolution and with the UK in all of its complexity um, that we have. This is the reality 
um, of UK political life now. There are different centres of power. There are people of influence in different parts of the UK. And pretending otherwise by centralising decision making is very unlikely, I think, to produce the kinds of benefits that they might hope to see in terms of strengthening the union. And Philip, can we just keep going the way we're going now or does it need some fundamental overhaul? The British constitution over the years has been a very malleable thing. And notoriously, we don't have a written constitution. So politicians, particularly those who said earlier on, can command the majority in the House of Commons, have a, a great deal of flexibility in the way that they approach matters of governance in the UK. Within that system, if you've got the right, it, it can be sustained uh, if, if, if it is managed in a sensible way because it has that flexibility. But that's a sort of state of mind uh, that we've got this complex geography of different powers. We are going to demonstrate that we respect uh, the powers that are held in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, Greater Manchester, West Midlands, wherever it may be. We respect the authority, the responsibility of other tiers of government, and we're going to go out of our way to demonstrate um, that we can make this work as a collaborative exercise. There's nothing to stop that happening. Uh, that is a choice that the government makes. Uh, but it, it, what we've seen over the, the last few years is erosion of trust in that system um, because of the way, of the way that different governments have approached uh, the various constitutional issues we've faced over the last few years. So inevitably, that creates a demand for more structural change, um, which puts boundaries around uh, what powers can be exercised by the UK government uh, and puts more, puts more statutory authority uh, into the whole system of intergovernmental relations. And the, the government that we have now, in a sense, has a choice which of those paths to go down or to just carry on doing uh, what it is doing. In the UK, we've never been very good at sort of fundamental structural constitutional change. Uh, it's not the sort of thing that we have a habit of doing. Uh, but I think a big question mark about whether we're approaching that moment, if we really want to see this union sustained um, for another 300 years, whether we need to be thinking about something uh, that, that is a fundamental shift um, in the way in which the, the, the various powers are expressed uh, in uh, the UK constitution. Ultimately, I think that means unpacking the whole concept of UK parliamentary sovereignty, um, which is looking a bit jaded in this day and age. That's a fascinating point uh, to end on. But just one last question to you, Philip. You were inside the machine at the heart of it for a long time until very recently. If you argued that inside the machine, did you find there was an appetite for that kind of fundamental change or a resistance to it in both Whitehall and Westminster? There was no appetite for fundamental change. I say that without revealing any state secrets because it was the, the position of the governments that I worked for. There was a, a rejection of the notion of having a constitutional convention, for example. And I think there was a hope that post-Scottish referendum uh, that the Scotland Act 16, the Wales Act 17, the various changes in Northern Ireland, uh, English votes for English laws, some of the work around uh, the House of Lords to try and cap the numbers, that all of that would settle down these constitutional issues in a way complete the reform process that the Labour government set off in 1997. Uh, and, you know, there is an argument, it's now a counterfactual to say, 
that that might have held things together perfectly satisfactorily for another couple of decades. Brexit has completely disrupted that whole thing because Brexit poses such fundamental questions about the relationship between the different parts uh, of the United Kingdom uh, in the context of a relationship with the EU and the wider world. Uh, and that's what I think ought to give pause uh, for a very much more fundamental rethink. I have to say, I see very little sign of that, I see very little political appetite. And my former colleagues uh, in Whitehall, of course, um, have their hands more than full uh, with two pretty much existential issues. One, trying to uh, uh, manage the whole Brexit process, uh, but of course, the other, uh, rightly concentrating their minds at how we deal with the coronavirus pandemic. Philip Rykoft, uh, Nicola McEwen, thank you both very much indeed. Just a reminder before we go, Constitutionally Sound is a production of the Centre on Constitutional Change. Audio was mixed and mastered by After 12 Media. You can subscribe to the podcast via your podcast app. You can also sign up to get our newsletter and access more commentary and analysis from our experts by visiting our website, centreonconstitutionalchange.ac.uk. You can also follow the Centre on Twitter at CCC underscore research. And you can find us on Facebook at Future UK Scotland. Thank you very much for staying with us. Mm-hmm.